Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast. My name is Casey Tigret. I'm your host. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. The author Annie Dillard writes, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour, and that one, is what we are doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days. It is a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. It's an interesting idea because I believe most of us struggle with the idea of schedules and time and place. We know that if we had more time or if we had a better handle on our schedule, the quality of our life might be better. The quality of our conversations might be better. But it's all a whim. It's all a dream, right? Our guest today, Justin Whitmill Early, had an experience where he found out what it was like to lose not only ritual, but almost to lose his life. And how habits, a a rule of life, a regulare, a, a trellis that his life could grow on, actually saved him from losing complete control of his family, his work, and his energy. And so it's with that that I welcome you to the conversation with my friend, Justin Whitmull Early. Justin, I appreciate you being on, man. Thanks for taking the time to talk. You bet. I am looking forward to it. I have to tell you, though, you are the second person on my podcast who has a background in law. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, Seth Haynes was a guest a while back, and uh, Seth has a background as well. So I don't know what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm honored to be paired with him. We, we were recently introduced... And actually just texting about lawyering and, and law last night. I think we have the remarkable commonalities of, of, of both being lawyers who both had life crashes, both wrote um, uh, you know, a book, and both have four boys. So when people hear about wow. it, they're like, oh, do you know? You know and now I'm like, yes, I do. Finally, I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> your stories are just right on the same line. <laughs> Well, the, the idea of having life experience, I think is good. And having, um, having guests, you know, part of what we talk about on the podcast is wisdom and having people who have a variety of different life experiences is key to that. So I put everybody through this little gauntlet at the beginning. Uh, if you had to define that word wisdom, uh, where would you start in creating that definition? I would love to have a lot of time to think about this and compose a response, but where, where would I start? I, what comes to mind is lived knowledge. So not theoretical knowledge, not just knowing things, but the ability to live out truth in, in body, like in embodied knowledge that which happens in process. And I think aggregates over time. I think in that sense, that's how I hope to become a wise person and that, you know, there's a sort of a lived knowledge by the end of your life that's worth passing on. It's both. I love that because that's a good question. I feel like it is. I feel like it's a helpful question. I like that you put it in. It's a cognitive thing expressed in a bodily way, Um, not only because that's real life. But also because that that's sort of the center point of the gospel as well. It's 
is not ideas about God, but in Jesus we see this wisdom as knowledge of God lived in real life in everyday circumstances and situations. Mm. Uh, but as with Jesus, um, and he chose his, but with all of us, wisdom a lot of times comes at a, at a cost and through a moment of crisis. And so for you in writing this book, a book is an idea, mm. but there's a life that kind of comes. We were talking about this earlier. There's a life that came around and led to this book. Talk about how you got to the place where these ideas in the book really became reality for you. Yeah. I was just talking with somebody the other day about how I've always been interested in writing, yet I never thought I would write a nonfiction Christian spiritual book first at least and and they 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 commented yeah this book sort of found you didn't it you had to write it and that was true and here's here's how that happened um so i was an english major at university of virginia and i graduated and went straight into mission work in china and my wife and i we got married shortly into that we met at college but um, got married and both lived in china together we were there um, for four plus years doing a evangelism and discipleship of college students and helping them uh, learn the teachings of Jesus, follow him, get plugged into the underground church there. But I had this experience one day on the streets of Shanghai that just changed my life trajectory. Um, and I, I saw in the span of five minutes, four illegal things. There was a, a black marketer, there was a um, prostitution, there was drug dealing, and then there was political protesting. I had never seen a political protest before in China. This is the one time I saw it. And you can imagine which of these things were, were clamped down on right away. Three of these things made you good money. Political protesting got you arrested immediately. And I had this like watershed realization moment where I sort of saw how much the structures of law and business form, our, our lives form, our, the possibility of our moral decisions. Um, and I just became so interested and compelled and even called, I think, by, by the Lord to try to go be a missionary to that and try to embody what the gospel would have to say within the structures and institutions of law and business. So I introduced that just to say, so when I, when I came back to the States and went to Georgetown Law School, I was, you know, a man on a call. I, I, I was, you know, not... I was doing this because I felt the Lord brought me to it. Now, what's interesting is that um, I think that lasts up until now. You know, there's three years of law school and five years of lawyering later. I still passionately feel this call. But what happened was that I entered into a world of formation. I entered into a formation machine called law school and, and lawyering. And I had no idea. I had no idea that you could assimilate to a crazy set of habits that would actually form you despite the call you had in your head. So what happened is my life, um, you know, was going great in one sense. I graduated at the top of my class. Um, I got a great job in, in mergers and acquisitions and a great law firm. I had two boys. I had a wonderful wife. But I was also living at a, you know, 90 mile an hour pace, just like every other top law school student. Um, the, 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 in the house of my life, you know, I was decorated with a lot of Christian content, but the architecture of my habits were just like everybody else's. Stay up late, 
wake up early, always add another resume activity, you know, be tethered to your device and your email and your calendar alerts to try to pack your schedule. I thought this was how you did well. You know, I thought this was the sign of a good life. And um, of course it worked until it didn't. Um, it, it got me a top spot at a top law firm, but then I crashed. And the way that happened um, was pretty, you know, unfortunately spectacular. It was just a couple months into my new job. So I'd been, you know, running at this pace for a couple of years, a couple months into my new, new job. Um, I woke up one night really suddenly with uh, what I now know is a panic attack. Did not know what it was then. I was just seized by this sudden awful anxiety, heart rate, high sweating. And um, it happened again the next night and I started to become unable to sleep. Well, um, so I went to the emergency room and a doctor told me uh, to my dismay that nothing was really wrong. I just had anxiety and that that was perfectly normal. As if that's comforting. <laughs> right, right. You're fine. You're fine, but you're not. Yeah. It, and um, it's also discomforting to know how normal it is. This is part, part of my journey of this book is realizing how many people nod their heads and say, yes, I either am in the, the midst of this kind of crisis or have been or know somebody. It is alarmingly normal. And, you know, to, to start to speed the story up, what, you know, I, I entered a really low point in my life. I think the lowest point I remember was probably I was standing in the kitchen with my wife and she was handing me some dishes to put away. And I looked at her and, and I said, I do not know where these go because I was starting to get so thin in my mind. Um, I was on sleeping medication, you know, and I still wasn't sleeping well. And I was so anxious that things just weren't, they weren't computing. And I, I, I entered a long phase of months where I either needed to drink alcohol or take some medication just to fall asleep. Um, important maybe to note that I wasn't abusing either of those things, but I was leaning heavily on both of those things. And that is what became the wake up call of, how, how did this missionary get converted to the nervous medicating lawyer? Yeah. And um, that's an important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the answer I think that I found was, was by habit because about seven to nine months later, I know it was actually a full year later. Um, I was sitting at the table with some friends and on the table was this program of habits that my wife and I had developed to try to rein in my life, which was by the way, just a last ditch effort. I, I had no profound realization like, oh, this is what I need to do. It was just one more thing to try because life was in such a, um, you know, low state. Um, and what happened was I asked my friends to keep me accountable to these little tiny daily and weekly rhythms. And they said yes. And um, I had no idea how much this would help. Because I think because I had no idea how much these small, ordinary patterns of our days and weeks actually affect our lives in extraordinary ways and my life began to dramatically change and then i got really interested in the power of habit for spiritual formation yeah yeah did you feel like before we get down to the solution part during that time when you were sitting there with that that list of habits on the table did you feel like life was out of control or did it just feel dark to where the idea of choosing a habit is a what choosing habits seems like a program of control, whereas there are things like depression and anxiety where it's I, I don't even know where to start to kind of manage this thing. Where were you on that spectrum? I would I definitely felt like life was out of control. I, definitely. Um, 
in fact, in some ways, I think this was attractive because these were such small things that I felt like um, a rhythm of turning my phone off for an hour each evening. It's like, well, I, I can I can control that. That's a small thing. Because um, I, yeah, I, I truly felt um, like things were spiraling. And that, by the way, is people who listening that have experienced anything like this know that's the scariest thing that you you really start to sense that you lose you or you have lost agency in the world and that you are at the mercy of your 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 brain which is sick or outside forces or even evil um all of which i don't believe is actually it's not true but that's how you feel and uh, that's the scariest part so um yeah i felt out of control <laughs> Yeah. And the reason I brought that up earlier is because I think there's a, I love, I love what you're doing. I love how you said that. And I always want to be careful to make the distinction between how sometimes we take certain challenges that people are facing and just say, well, if you do this, things will get better. And there are certain situations where that's true. Like what we're about to talk about is absolutely true, but that there are certain things where, well, this is not about you adding another program or habit. Yeah. This yeah. may be you adding one habit, which is an appointment with someone who's trained to help you work through that. But uh, so yes. that's why I was asking about the difference between feeling out of control and then feeling that sort of anxiety, depression, darkness. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what to do. Yeah, that's when you need that's when you need a wise guide to get out of there. Yeah. And I I I try to caveat when I talk about this stuff to just make really clear that these things are complicated and there is not any sort of one size fits all solution. I do think it's valuable to 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 share the testimony of that I was somebody who like went to a very dark place, and the Lord, through through community and communal habit change, brought me out of it. And so it's you know it's worth telling. It's not going to be everybody's story, but I found it's more more people than I think are having these kind of collapses. And more people than I expected are being helped by paying attention to the habits that led them there. Yeah. How did, how did your choice of habits change your work as a lawyer? What's the connection there between choosing habits and how you operated as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer? It, it, so there's a, two parts to that. One was a lot of them that I picked were sort of directly related to I think what I would call the uh, dangerous or unhelpful liturgies that my life were, were, was uh, that, that this kind of life was creating. Surprisingly, I think it actually helped me become a better lawyer. And um, I'll give you some examples. So some of the things that were just you know normal part of my routine would be wake up short on sleep because I never go to bed on time. And when I say there's sort of a liturgy here, I mean, that repeated action carried a belief that I was a limitless person, that I could always push it and my body would be fine, sort of infinite, like a God. Um, I would wake up and then immediately check my work email. And I think there's a liturgy of habit going on there where I, I was saying it's okay if I miss a quiet time, it's okay if I miss the meditation, but don't, don't miss a quick response to the office because if you're not working fast and working great, then who are you? You know, there's an identity liturgy there. Um, I, I was rushing through breakfast, working through lunch, often coming home too late for dinner. 
And so by missing all these opportunities to actually sit down for a meal with people, I was sort of reinforcing this liturgy of belief that to be busy is not just normal, but it's actually desirable because people who want your time, that means you're important. And, uh, you know, a final one would be, I would work through, I would work with my phone <laughs> right in front of me um, and, and all my computer notifications on and try to respond to them all in real time, whether that was like a text message with a new meme or whether that was an urgent client email. Because the idea was just like to be a good worker is to stay updated and, and be really, you know, relevant, not to focus um, or get into like deep work or have like deep relational moments. And so all four of those things I just mentioned, you know, I started some of the habits that I was drawing were, were intended to target those things, like turning your phone off for an hour a day, or actually another daily habit is having one communal meal each day, or the daily habit of scripture before phone. Those things were, they were all targeted to counter these liturgies of American life, not just learning, but I think any sort of busy American life. What I, what I found was that um, not only did they have incredible impacts on just slowing me down so that I could become more attuned to who God was, how he was present in my day and, and what that meant for my work, but I also found that I did better work as a lawyer when I focused. And that when I didn't answer emails first thing every day, I went in to answer emails now out of a desire to work excellently, not out of an insecure fear that I needed to be the quickest to respond. And there's, there I, could, I could go on with a lot of examples, but I actually think, um, and I talk at law firms about this now, but li literally about this, about how you'll, you'll be a better lawyer if you, if you get some control, some limiting habits to your lawyering work. So it definitely affected the way I work. It definitely limited the amount and the frequency and the intensity in which I work. And it actually has made me better. I still do them all because of that. Yeah. How has this process redefined the word value for you? How do you, how do you find and define value now as a result of going through a life where you've restructured things based on habits that target negative or false liturgies? How do you, how do you define value now? Yeah, I've never been asked that before, but I love that because I think what this has done has actually helped pair value with intentionality. So for example, I would have said, I value my family and important time with my family. But the unconscious habit of always having my phone on in the evenings, um, because I might miss an email from a client and, I, and that can't happen. When I started you know, applying these habits, I immediately realized that, oh, what I value actually is not good time with my family. What I value is being a quick responder to any client. And so with, when I sort of entered into this world and realized that, you know, a vast majority of my life was being defined by unconscious habits that I hadn't really chosen, you know, usually somebody else had sort of set them as a, as a culture and I just assimilated to them. I started to realize that I don't, I have a lot of values that I talk about, but the lived values, the, uh, some people call them shadow values the values that were actually being borne out through, through habit, um, kind of connected to what we were talking about earlier, like embodied knowledge, you know, as wisdom. I think embodied values, important distinction. You can say what you think you value. Pay attention to your habits if you want to find out what you actually value. 
And I think that, it, so it really opened my eyes to the fact that um, we, you, you can say one thing and you can run this way and, but your, your, your life will always follow your habits. So if you, if you want to go to that value, pick some habits that lead you there. Yeah. This seems to be the, the, the most painful discussion for spiritual formation. And it's, it holds two things in tension because it's, it's asking us to really look closely at our life and what's actually happening in our life. And on the other hand, knowing that on the other side of that, if we do that and if we engage in habits, uh, it will set us free. It will re, it'll reimagine what's valuable to us. It'll help us re to actually value what we say we value, not yes. just what we think we do. And you talk about in the book, there's a quote that says, the way to victory is through surrender. The way to freedom is through submission. Mm. How you've done these habits ever since the book, ever since the, you know, mm -hmm. the time that generated the book and then through the book process, has that, how has that phrase become more alive to you? Maybe even recently. Yeah. Um, I, it's become more and more and more real because you would think, here's what you would think. Here's what I would think. Five years later, or it's coming up on five years later. You would think like, oh, I don't want to be bound to these things for like my whole life. Like that's a rut. That's that 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 sort of connotes that like you need a crutch. Um, that's what I would have thought. And people ask me like, you really still do all these every day? Um, failure is a big part of my routine and habit, by the way. But but yes, I actually strive. To, I approximate them. And the the big thing to say there is that I now look at these as the limits in which freedom lies yeah so there i don't do these things perfectly but i now look at them as the the guardrails um that that keep me safe so that i can actually you know drive fast on this on the road the, the metaphor being that yeah these are the limitation in which freedom is found and that's, that's the important distinction, because I think in the contemporary West, especially in America, we have this idea that to be ourselves, we need that we're not free until we're free from all limitations. But we're limited creatures. I mean, we're finite beings. So there's always going to be limitations on our lives. And what happens when we pursue that definition of freedom, it, we always become the slave to some unseen master. We submit to these limitations that we hadn't anticipated. Um, but the biblical definition of freedom, I think, reverses that and says, you know, what if freedom is not the absence of all limitations, but the presence of the right ones so that you can live according to what you're meant to be or created to be, like a finely tuned plane that's so carefully limited that it can actually fly. I look at these habits now with a lot of joy and think, you know, these are, these are the limits in which love and freedom lie. Yeah. So I want to live here. And you're tapping into, and you mentioned it in the book, you're tapping into something very ancient, the idea of a rule of life. Yeah. So this isn't necessarily new. And it's because no. I think sometimes people hear that and they think, well, this is, you know, something from the organizational development world or something from the power of human potential world. It's actually you know, very ancient and has its roots in some very sacred places, monasteries and, and communities mm -hmm. of prayer and, and things like that. The idea that it's actually the constraints we place that make us free. 
when people hear that and hear constraints, and you mentioned the word earlier, the idea of ruts. We were talking earlier about this, something that I found out when I was writing my book, the idea of procedural memory. Like mm-hmm. there is neurological concepts of if you know how to do something like tie your shoe, you don't have to think about how to tie your shoe. And so you don't have to expend brain energy on that. But what happens is this is so we were talking about why we get our best ideas in the shower. Right, right. <laughs> it's because you're you you don't have to think about washing yourself. So that other part of your brain is really free to dream and ideate and think. So not only has so it sounds like the rule has given you the ability to make better choices. How has this, these habits, how have they given you that procedural memory? What have you been able to think about, dream of, engage with as a result of not having to put your energy on checking the email and answering the phone? How, how has that changed the way that you think and, and operate? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And I love the tie into the procedural memory and neurology because some of what really helped me in learning this stuff is I, I started to look into the neuroscience of habit. And there's like, there's a really beautiful intertwining, I think, of what's going on in our brain and our souls. So the, you know, habit activity happens in the deepest part of our brain, which is why we can, you know, leave the office or school and drive home and never think about a turn that we've made because you know, or, or in the shower and we're washing, we never think about how to do it. And our brain is working on something else. And those are great moments of thought. Um, so that's what happens when there's a helpful habit. But the opposite of that is really dangerous. You know, when there's a road carved in our morning routine that's reinforcing mindless submission to an operating system um, that's designed to attract our attention and sell it to advertisers, that kind of habit, we don't realize what's going on, but it's actually sucking our, our mental energy into places that we'd rather it not go. Or, you know, this is true for addictions or even just critical patterns of thought in your work routine. Um, and so this difference, this distinction between education and formation, you know, education, what we know, frontal lobe stuff, formation, the things that we do over and over, the stuff that's caught, not taught. A lot of that, you know, is the realm of habit. And so getting to your question, when, when you have like a daily routine of bad habits that actually guides your gaze of your heart to getting your identity from social media or work emails or, you know, busyness or keeping your schedule full, you, you I, and I, you, you, your mental energy just gets poured into these self-justification liturgies. And what I've found to be the most beautiful thing about this is that the the mental and spiritual freedom that I have now, again, because of these limitations, to actually stop looking for my identity in my work email or in social media posts means that I have now incredible creative energy and incredible like love to offer someone else. And this is the best part of all this, right? Because if this were just about getting your mindfulness back, this would, um, this would be self-care or self-help and that, you know, it's, it's interesting, but it's not spiritually profound. But when you get free of these self-justification liturgies that come through habit, you are actually free not to love other people, to pay attention to other people, to work not because you need to earn your identity, but to work because you want to serve your neighbor. Or, or to, you know, to read not because you feel like you need to keep up, but to read 
because you you desire to love and the formation that comes for that. So I think that there's a freedom to be outward, to live outwardly instead of the navel gazing, which is the norm. And exhaustion, you know, being sapped of our energy tends to force us inward. Uh, we become protective. Uh, yes. bur burnout has a has a quality of of energy hoarding or emotional hoarding. Yes. Where we don't feel like we have enough to give away to anybody else because we haven't managed it well. So we hoard it and we turn inward and we hold it and yes. say, I may not have enough to get for me to get through today. So how am I going to give some away to you to get through your day? That's a great point. I, I always think busyness narrows the imagination. And I think stress, you know, constricts love. And so both of these things, you know, are, are they have significant, significant impact. They're not, it's not sort of like, oh, I'm a, you know, I follow Jesus, but this is really a busy time in life. As if it's incidental to our discipleship. It, you know, what, to the extent to which we're busy and stressed is integral to the idea of what, what kind of redemptive outcomes can we imagine are possible in the world? And what kind of love can we imagine that we have to give? Like, these, this is at the center of discipleship. And so we need, I mean, we need to be a countercultural community of peace in a busy and stressed world. That, might, that may be one of the greatest witnesses we have to offer contemporary America. So you give, the book is built on very practical habits, which is good. And I, and I think that's helpful because it's, you don't, you do that embodied, embodied knowledge. Like, it, you know, this is a thing. Now let's do something with the thing. And mm -hmm. so each, each of the habits that you talk about is very practical. Uh, however, as always with practical steps, especially new things, there are obstacles. For you as the person who, who went first, who sort of ate the mushroom and went before everybody else, uh, what were your challenges? What were the obstacles you found to integrating these habits into your life? Um, say, say that last part again. What were the obstacles I found? Yeah, too? integrating the habits into your life. I got, yeah, fear and, and then just normalcy, I guess. So, but the fear is the more important one. I'll give you the example of starting the daily habit of turning my phone off for an hour a day. As a corporate lawyer who is sort of paid to be on call and respond to crisis situations, I was scared to say, uh, I, you know, from about the hours of 7 to 8 p.m., I'm just going to turn off my phone and be present with my family. But, but the phone was causing a problem in my evening routine because I was you know, I was not present. You know, it's hard to have a good conversation with your wife when the phone is in your face. It is depressingly common to hear your kids say, play with me, you know, when you're sitting there on your phone while you're supposed to be building Legos. So I felt like I had to do something. I was really scared. What's fascinating is um, once I decided, yeah, I'm just going to try it. I'm just going to do this. I, I, two things, two things happen. Uh, one, I got my presence back very quickly. Like, it, it was amazing. Just that small habit of turning my phone off in the evening for an hour gave me my presence back. Two, I realized quickly 
that no one had noticed. No one, no one, I don't think anybody cared. No one complained. I was much less important than I thought I was. And so this fear that, you know, things are not going to be okay if I don't check in all the time is uh, completely, you know, misguided. <laughs> it, and it's very freeing to be free of that. So I think that's the, it was 90% was just the fear. Actually creating the habit, um, it is hard. Sometimes you don't remember. I tell a lot of people, set alarms on your phone to turn off your phone. You know, use your phone. Um, set alarms on your phone to pray at certain times of the day. There's a sense where you actually do need to be reminded to start to get into the groove of these habits because the world is not going to remind you. Um, but that's like 10% of the battle. Those are easy things to accomplish. The fear is the hard one. It's so funny. You t- the first thing is fear. So now that, you've, now that you have realized you're not as important as you thought you were, now you have to do like a habit to deal with your self-esteem issues where you're like, oh man, they don't need me like I thought they needed me. <laughs> a little bit. But to, you know, it's mostly freeing. <laughs> so now I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be that important. <laughs> <laughs> I like not being that important. That's I like right, not yeah. thinking it. And then I like the fact that I know that it's actually not true that I'm, yeah. you know, if I stop working, the world will stop turning. Was there, is there a practice, a habit that you chose that you found among all of them to be the one that was sort of the hinge that was for you personally, that was sort of the hinge point that that one really hit hard and really did the dug in and did the most work. I'm asking you to pick your favorite. I'm asking you to pick your favorite kid, you know? So (laughs) I was totally just going to say, I was like, that is like trying to pick a favorite child. Um, But I, you know, since it's not actually, they're not actually children, I'll, I'll venture some guesses. Um, Sabbath, the weekly habit of Sabbath was, and has been incredibly important because I think that's one of the ones that not only just really digs into community. I mean, you, you Sabbath with a family, you Sabbath with people. Um, but it also really digs into the idol of, you know, will the, will the world stop spinning if you stop working? And it's also a long game habit. You, you don't, you don't Sabbath once. I mean, I feel like you, you, you don't know how, you don't even know how when you start, you know, it is like a long process and, and like years into practicing the Sabbath with, with my wife and my family, we're still, you know, reaping new rewards and tinkering with it in different ways. But that, that has been a really important one. Um, the habit, uh, the daily habit of trying to pray three times a day, three times a, uh, of kneeling prayer. And, and the habit mechanically just looks like morning, first thing, midday, around the middle of the workday, and then evening, having a brief kneeling prayer. That's been way, way, way more formative than I ever thought. Again, started that one just to try to mark the day and try to just introduce little bits of prayer into my day. I had no idea how much more a person of prayer I would become because of these little moments. Was it the improvement in the in the prayer how did it affect just life in general to set those three moments and then to adhere to them well this is a good kind of um example of all the habits in some way because all of the habits in some way try to counter some unseen cultural liturgy that we might be going through or busyness liturgy 
And so the way that the kneeling prayer did that was there, you know, there's multiple times in my day where I find myself wishing things were otherwise. So often begins right in the morning, just wishing I had woken up earlier or that I wasn't so tired or that the kids were sleeping longer or that I didn't have so much to do today. Um, and then midday, there's this, you know, there's this, I can usually run most of the morning pretty hard on caffeine and this imagination that I'll get everything done today that needs to be done, which about midday starts to fall apart. You know, you start, you have the caffeine crash and you realize you're nowhere close, you're nowhere close to getting all the things you're supposed to do today done. You look down the barrel of the afternoon, you're like, I'm, I'm a failure, you know, I'm, um, and then often, you know, I'm laying in bed in the evening and this is, this is not like was true. These things are true still today. And, and I start to, you know, sp spin and think, you know, what, what's it all worth? Did I do anything good today? All, all these moments, you know, I just expose me as a fearful person who doesn't believe that they're truly loved and, and thus needs to furiously sprint through the world trying to earn it. And so what, and, and I wouldn't have been able to articulate all this at the time, but some of it. And I sort of sense that what if I replace those moments with, with saying, I, I do need help today. Like Lord in the morning, um, be with me today. Cause the day might be hard. It might be tough. It might be long or in the afternoon to stop for a moment of kneeling prayer and say, um, what, what can I do for the rest of this workday to love my neighbor? Not how can I get it all done so that I feel good about myself, but what can I do to serve my neighbor? Um, and those, these moments like kneeling gets your attention. That's why, that's why the habit was kneeling prayer because it's hard for your mind to drift when your hips and back are uncomfortable. So you, you're just, you, I, it just sort of keyed me into these moments. And the second way it's like all the other habits is that those moments, rather than being the entirety of my prayer life, they became the trellis and, and the rule of life. Um, the Latin word for rule is not like a, something, an obligation you have to follow in that phrase, it's regulare, the idea of a bar that something can grow on or be supported by. It's the idea of a trellis, that you build a trellis of kneeling prayer on which more prayer can grow. And in inevitably that happened. And it happens in a lot of ways with all these habits. You build this small pattern and love grows on it. And so that, that's been one of the ones that just, a, a lot of people told me the same thing. And for me, it's been very key too, just to be, actually for the first time in my life, become a person of prayer. That's been a very satisfying movement. Had you read, had you read Ken Shigematsu's book before you wrote yours? Not before, no. Um, and I've since gotten to know him. Um, I, well, I've, I've, I've been in, in touch with him and the IVP uh, asked him to, to read mine. So I hadn't before, but now, now I'm familiar with his work. Yeah, that idea of the trellis. And it's just a beautiful picture. I think it helps us it helps us break out of our, I think most of us spiritually don't ever lose that rebellion. Mm. We, we like being rebels. We're mm. all like, when it comes to our life with Jesus, we are all Bruce Springsteen and we all <laughs> want to just hop on the motorcycle and take off out of Jersey. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of a rule then becomes, no, I don't want a rule, but when it's a support, yeah, you know, it's a structure and a support that guides rather than inhibits. That's, that's incredibly important, incredibly helpful. Yeah, a lot of us have to crash before we try any of this um, because we do just want to be rebellious, and it's in a, it's in great suffering or a crash that we realize this is not working for me, and and like oh that people would not have to go through that. Like I do not want. I, yeah, I would love for you know more people to just say let's 
let's just let's try this because yeah, I don't need to fall apart. But, you know, often we do. But either way, the Lord leads us. I still think that there's a turn of maturity when you start to actually imagine that your life would be better when ordered in the love of Christ rather than ordered in your own sort of spontaneous idea of freedom that often leads to a, a dangerous slavery. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of leading into my this last question, which is what do you what is the gift you hope this book gives to the people who read it? Huh. Um that's an easy one to answer. I, I hope it it gives them the freedom to follow Jesus in their ordinary life. The freedom to follow Jesus in their ordinary life. Because what I have found is that we are often, you know, believing and saying the right things and completely enslaved to a pattern of habits that's that's guiding our life in these liturgies of consumerism and anxiety and depression. And we become really deformed people that that know the right answers. And I think when you start to pair your belief with your lived practice of habits, you, um, you know, contrary to being enslaved, contrary to being limited, you actually become free to see that the Lord is with you, present in your daily mundane work, um, that there's actually a lot of joy there, that in, in, your, in your daily patterns, there's, he's waiting around every corner. He's under every... If, if unturned rock, if you're outside or the next page of the paper, if you're working at a desk like me, that he's, he's there and it all matters and you can encounter him. So that I think that freedom to be free from all the, um, just the enslaving habits of technology and busyness and actually entering this freedom to follow Christ in your daily routine. I hope that gives a lot of people that. I'm glad you wrote it, man. I'm not glad you went through the crash, but I'm glad the crash led to some wisdom and insight for other people to learn from. And that's the beautiful uh, thing. The book is books are collation of our lives, and you've given um, yes, you've given your collection to people so that they can learn. And thanks for doing that. You're welcome. Thank you for saying so. Yeah. Justin Whitmill Early is the creator of The Common Rule, a program of habits designed to form us in the love of God and neighbor. His book, A Common Rule or The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, is available to you now. He is also a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in Richmond, Virginia, and he previously served as a missionary in China. He and his wife, Lauren, have four sons. It's been a great conversation with him. If you want to pick up his book, you can find a link in the show notes. Also, you can find a link to my newest book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life, where I talk about procedural memory that we talked about in the podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this, uh, if you're streaming, thank you. If you're listening through subscription on iTunes or Google Play, thank you for that as well. Uh, Please rate or review the podcast when you get a chance. And I hope that you'll join us for the next episode in a couple weeks. But until then, be well. Live wisely. Peace, friends.